Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics, the Prime Minister pushes back. That is the danger of the rise of the right-wing influence that is feeling its impact in Canada. Accused of saddling Ukrainians with a carbon tax, Justin Trudeau calls out Conservatives for voting against a trade deal Ukraine is asking for. What's really happening behind the rhetoric will convene our journalist panel. And... We have given Ukraine enough to survive, but not to win. We'll play our feature interview with British MP Alicia Kearns, chair of the UK's Foreign Affairs Committee. We'll get her take on Israel's campaign against Hamas and why she believes the West is failing Ukraine. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. On Tuesday, Conservatives voted en masse against an updated free trade deal with Ukraine, rejecting it because Pierre Polyev claims it ties Ukrainians to a carbon tax. But Liberals are tying the Conservative opposition to something else, American Republicans, some of whom are questioning the amount of aid the United States is providing Ukraine. Suddenly, the Conservative Party of Canada would choose to not stand with Ukraine in something that they need, that the Ukraine is asked for. And to use the frankly absurd excuse that it's because Ukraine will be bringing in a price on pollution in the coming years. Obviously, that's an excuse, but it's not the real story. The real story is the rise of a right-wing American MAGA-influenced thinking that has made Canadian Conservatives, who used to be among the strongest defenders of Ukraine, I'll admit it, turn their backs on something Ukraine needs in its hour of need. That is the danger of the rise of the right-wing influence that is feeling its impact in Canada. Well, joining us now is our journalist panel. Robert Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail, Stephanie Levitz, political reporter for the Toronto Star, and Joël Denis Bellivance, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for La Presse. Hello to the three of you. Thanks for having us. So let's begin uh, with Trudeau, and, and really uh, beginning at the beginning of the week when uh, essentially the Conservatives voted against this trade deal with Ukraine. A lot of reasons have been offered as to why they did so. What do you think is behind this, Bob? Uh, Well, I largely think it has a lot to do with the People's Party of Canada. The Conservatives are worried about their far-right flank for some reason. It's beyond me why they are. Uh, And that, um, and Maxime Bernier, as you know, is is out there uh, saying that we shouldn't be supporting Ukraine. Uh, we should uh, basically back in Russia. It's it's just it's. I know this is nuts, but that's where they seem to be coming from, and um, it's got to be making a lot of conservatives very uncomfortable. And the, what we saw with the uh, with Mr. Polyev the other day, uh, when he blatantly lied about this treaty, um, saying that it was going to impose a carbon tax on these poor farmers from Ukraine, which is absolutely not true. Even the Ukrainian embassy had to put out a statement saying. There isn't where there's no carbon tax in this uh, trade agreement. They're talking about carbon pricing. 
And so, you know, Mr. Polyev has had a really good run for the last couple of months, all summer in fact, as he talked about housing and economic issues and he tried to show himself to be a more uh, easygoing and, uh, guy with a sense of humor. And uh, this, what happened to him this week uh, showed another side of Pierre Polyev and you just saw the Liberals jump on it, the Prime Minister nailing him as a magna kind of Republican that is going to bring that into Canada. That is going to be the campaign message that they take to Canadians and Mr. Polyev, if he keeps, if he keeps getting in these kind of tracks, this 14% lead he has, May, may start coming down over yeah. the Liberals. Yeah, well, without a doubt, Liberals have been saying this for months now. Once Canadians start scrutinizing Pierre Polyev even more so, they're going to turn away from him. That's the Liberal argument. Uh, what do you make of what we saw this week, Stephanie? One of the other things I think as Canadians are going to start scrutinizing Mr. Polyev that they're going to see is a rigid commitment to his ideological principles. This is a guy who is beloved by MPs, beloved by the party because he has said the exact same things for 20 years. And one of the things he has said ever since it sort of surfaced as part of our policy dialogue in this country is that he was opposed to carbon taxes. Uh, setting aside the fact that we're not sure whether Mr. Polyev would actually cancel the existing carbon price scheme on industrial emitters. That's something he's not really gotten into. He's very, very clear that he opposes a consumer price on carbon and he believes it's an anathema and he believes it's punitive and right now there's a fight going on in the Senate um, that has been going on in the Senate over you know, another element of this carbon price. He has been very aggressively against that. And you can see a world in which the folks that are in his office scrutinizing bills, as one does, see the words carbon pricing and just freak out. <laughs> we don't support carbon pricing. We can't support carbon pricing. And then, as Mr. Polyev is wont to do, as Bob alluded to, he will seize on a piece of information and distort it out of reality. He lies. And so when you take this and then he manipulates it to make it look like something that it isn't so that he can stand pat on his ideological principle, that's where sometimes, you know, then questions start getting asked and then one wonders, is this guy have what it takes to convince Canadians he ought to be Prime Minister? Mm -hmm. on, on that point, uh, making stuff up, I think there's, it's happening also in Canada because the Conservative Party has been saying in French that the carbon tax applies in Quebec, but it's not the case. It's a different system. And so we had to deconstruct that kind of story narrative. But the Quebec Tory MPs have keep repeating it in the House of Commons over and over again. And we've met some reports that, you know, uh, making, uh, 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 telling the, the people that this is not the case. So it is happening uh, in this case in Ukraine with, with the uh, free trade agreement and the vote, but also it's been happening before that in the case of Quebec where there's no carbon tax. There is a, a, a cap and trade system that is in place in Quebec, but it's not a carbon tax. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, uh, you, you also mentioned the debate that's happening in the Senate, and I think that's also a worthwhile topic to explore because we, we also saw uh, Andrew Scheer, the, the Conservative House leader, put out this wanted poster uh, and putting uh, on it two liberal senators, both of whom women, one racialized, one differently abled, uh, which caused some great uh, debate and controversy this week. Uh, did Andrew Scheer go too far? Is this a bad look for the Conservatives, as you were pointing out, leading right now in the polls? Well, first of all, um, he should have thought, thought this through because he put their posters up and said, call in and um, on, on top of that, Don Platt, who was the Senate leader, uh, went over and was really angry at two of these women uh, and was yelling and screaming at them in the, House of Con in the Senate chamber. And it just looked like uh, a, a really a bullying, nasty partisanship. Uh, to Don Platt's uh, credit, 
he got up in the Senate uh, chamber uh, on Thursday evening and he apologized uh, sincerely, I think, to the people who he was yelling at. In the case of Mr. Schreer, a former House of Commons speaker, former leader of the Conservative Party, not a word of apology because he frightened those women um, with what he put up on social media because they were threatened by people calling their offices. In fact, one of the one of the senators even left her home over the Senator weekend Clement. because she was very concerned for her safety. And this is a black woman, uh, and so he went too far. But he hasn't got the guts to apologize. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and to that, it's now a police investigation because someone, she left her home because someone called and threatened to actually get her in her home. Yeah. Uh, Stephanie, what do you make of it? If there is no, uh, unfortunately, better example of the reality we're in now, which there used to be a time when we were very all content to be like, well, you know, social media is not the real world. This is a classic case example of how what is said and expressed on social media can be twisted, di distorted, and have actual real-world physical security implications for people. There's no b straighter line than you can be drawing right now, and we've been drawing it, I think, for weeks with the conflagration in the Middle East and the explosion of hate and anti-Semitism and Islamophobia we're seeing in this country. So for right now, at this moment in time, with social media being the cesspool of violence and hate and anger that it is, to use that as a mechanism to convince people to do what people actually ought to do, right, Michael? They ought to be calling elected or appointed representatives <laughs> to voice their opinions about legislation. But to do that on social media, when right now all that medium is is a place of hate, just seems so inexcusable, I suppose, and, and another further poisoning of our democratic discourse. Yeah, I mean, and to that, I, I don't know if you can make a call on social media in this day and age that doesn't come out as anger. I don't think you, you people go on social media, by all means, have a gentle conversation and raise this issue. I think it immediately goes to the anger part. Uh, what yeah, do you I say? Agree. I think social media, Twitter, Facebook is a pipeline for a hateful discourse, and I'm not too present on that. I prefer to be reading traditional media, the mainstream media. But going back to we want our salaries. <laughs> 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 but going back to uh, uh, Bob's point about Mr. Andrew Shear, I don't recognize Mr. Shear since he uh, was uh, Rosanna's leader. Um, he he's a different. Uh, person. Uh, he was the Speaker of the House of Commons. He know what the rules are of parliamentary uh, privilege, parliamentary respect and all that. But I sense that Mr. Scheer, since he's uh, the House Leader of the Conservative Party under Pierre Poilievre, uh, he lost, I think, the notion of respect for institutions and all that matters is gaining power. That's to me, that's the picture that I have of Mr. Scheer right now. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see how, how people continue this conversation after it, uh, which we'll revisit. But right now, I also want to get your, your opinions on the fall economic statement. Of course, that was delivered uh, this past week as well. A number of things, uh, as expected, the Liberals making uh, promises when it comes to affordable housing, go into rental construction, but also absent a path to balance. And uh, a lot of economists were talking, that, uh, talking about that rather after the FES. Is this an issue that will make this government even more vulnerable than it is, Bob? Yes, potentially, because they don't know how to restrain spending. It's not in their DNA. We've seen this. Uh, since 2019, there's been $100 billion of, of new spending. We're now at $526 billion of federal spending. And she's saying, uh, 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 sorry, um, uh, Ms. Freeland, the finance minister, is saying, well, we hope by 26, 27, we'll be down to uh, about 1% of GDP on, of, of our deficit. But this is going to be before an election campaign. 
So knowing the liberals, can you really see their marketing rest with restraint as we head into an election campaign, which probably, if it doesn't happen next fall, in time with the, yeah. uh, the election in the United States where they can run Polyev again uh, <laughs> and compare him to Trump, it'll happen in 2025, so it has to happen, and I just can't see them meeting that target of 1%. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and also that, that the Business Council of Canada really saying that it's the debt servicing is, is going to exceed how much is invested in healthcare. Yeah. Sorry, Joel, didn't I would say that this, I think the economic statement of this week is a turning point in politics, because for the first time, we can see that interest rate payments are higher than any other items in the budget. And I think we're taking a collective, being collectively conscious that We've maxed out the credit card in Ottawa, and it's time to come back to some spending control. And uh, my, in the past, the Liberals talk about modest deficit. We live with that. We have the COVID crisis, but now the deficits are part of the structure of the spending in Ottawa. And we're sort of not far away from reliving the 1970s, whereas spending was out of control, deficit was out of control, uh, the debt was out of control, and what le it led us to what? some kind of austerity in one way because we had no choice to face our financial obligation. And I think this is a turning point this week, that financial uh, fiscal uh, update. Mm -hmm. uh, Stephanie? Well, and also what's, what's notable, right, is, is the places where they're spending money. I mean, of course, every government has to make choices. Not that this liberal government necessarily has always made those choices. They've just spent it all on everything. <laughs> but there's two big things that are not in this fall economic statement, and it's not clear where or when they're coming. One of them is the billions, literally billions, the Defense Department needs. Mm -hmm. The Defense Department is out of money. We are out of guns. We are out of bullets. We are out of tanks. We are out of everything. Of and they are also. of people, yeah, of housing, of all the things the defense, you know, our military needs. We don't have any of it. And there was not a dime for defense spending in here. And that really raises some questions about is that what the liberals mean? But to Bob's point, they can't possibly not be spending another dime on defense. So what about those fiscal guardrails? How real can those be? But the second politically sensitive thing is pharmacare. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're waiting on this multi-billion dollar national pharmacare promise plan that is part of the deal with the New Democrats. No money booked for it. The New Democrats are dancing around, well, whether it's coming or whether it's not, it's part of the deal. So, you know, with this government, um, either they're going to just not do it, and at some point they're going to have to admit that and take the political heat that's going to follow, or they are going to do it. And again, so there we go into big, big deficit land. Yeah, well, that was a question I kept asking people. You know, how, how much can you rely on these numbers if you're not factoring pharmacare? Because we know that the NDP want a public system. So th I think that's a big question mark uh, going into the next federal budget. And you know the price tag of uh, pharmacare. Yeah. It's $13 billion per year once it's yeah. fully implemented. They can't so possibly do Pharmacare, Unless you raise taxes or you, you need to raise revenue somehow to be able to pay those big and ticket items. Just point on the defense stuff. Mm -hmm. Our allies are not taking us seriously exactly. anymore. They don't even care if we're at the table because we don't match um, them in terms of uh, trying to increase the defense budget in a world where China is is a threat in the in the Southeast Asia around the world, frankly, and Russia's uh, threatening Ukraine, and we have a war in the Middle East. Allies want us to step up to the plate. Australia has replaced Canada as the United States' most valuable partner. Um, the creation of office, uh, right? And you know, and and at, I don't. I don't think they're going to spend and, the money. And, and Australia is a few miles away from the United States. Yeah. <laughs> but also, I think we can also circle back to where we were before with Mr. Polly and the Conservatives. Again, the Conservatives have traditionally been very strong on defense, very supportive of funding the military. And right now, we're not hearing any of that out of Mr. Polly, right? He decries defense cuts, sort of. 
Um, and leaves that mostly to James Bazan and other folks in his caucus. But I mean, I think it's probably fair to make a guess that Mr. Polyev is not interested in defense spending either. And that too will be a weakness for him probably come the next election. Okay, well, last word to you, Stephanie, but uh, thank you very much thank for the you. time. We'll be back. You're smiling. I know you want to say more. We'll talk next week. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, Stephanie, Shelton, thank you for this. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> thank you, Michael. <laughs> time now for a look at the other stories that rounded out this week. On Friday, Canada and the European Union wrapped up their annual summit. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau meeting with European Council President Charles Michel and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen in St. John's. The leaders discussing several pressing issues, including the environment and wars in Ukraine and the Middle East. Among the announcements emerging from the talks, establishing a green alliance to strengthen Canada-EU ties on climate action and sustainable development, and a new digital partnership. As leaders, we're continuing that work to ensure a future that is safe, that is clean air, that has great jobs, and where there is opportunity for everyone. A win for Canada in its trade dispute with the United States over dairy imports. A three-person expert panel ruled on Friday that Canada is not improperly limiting access to its dairy market. American dairy farmers complained Canada had not opened its market to foreign producers as part of the revised Canada-U.S.-Mexico agreement. In a statement, the International Trade Minister Mary Ng said, quote, this is good news for Canada's dairy industry and our system of supply management. The ruling is final. There is no appeal process under Kusma. The federal government and Quebec announced an agreement to address gender-based violence in the province. Ottawa will invest more than $97 million over four years to support Quebec's strategy to tackle sexual violence and domestic violence. Investment is focused on prevention, it is focused on awareness and detection and the development of educational materials and training for people working on the front lines. According to Statistics Canada, more than 11 million Canadians have experienced gender-based violence since the age of 15. And finally, Hamas began releasing more hostages on Friday. They were handed over to Egyptian authorities at the Rafah border crossing. Under a negotiated agreement, Hamas is expected to free 50 women and children during a four-day ceasefire. In exchange, 150 Palestinian women and children jailed in Israel will also be released. British MP Alicia Kearns chairs the UK's Foreign Affairs Committee. She's the first woman to hold that position, also the youngest person to ever be elected to the role by members of the British House of Commons. Last Saturday, I spoke with Ms. Kearns at the Halifax International Security Forum. We discussed Israel's struggles against Hamas, and we spent a lot of time discussing Ukraine's fight against Russia because Ms. Kearns believes Western countries are failing Ukraine. Ms. Kearns, thank you very much for the time. Uh, I want to begin with the very fact that you raised the alarm of potential violence in Gaza long before it happened. Why do you think your warnings were ignored? I mean, look, none of us saw it happening in the way it had. And yes, I said that we'd see the Gaza crisis of 2023, but I never imagined the crimes against humanity that we saw perpetrated against Israel. Um, it is difficult. There is nothing easy about the Middle East. 
But I think with the focus, the tilt, as the British government previously called it, to the Middle East, uh, to the Indo-Pacific, that was a tilt away from the Middle East. You can't tilt to something without tilting away from something else. And the Middle East is difficult, it's complex, there's no easy wins. Whereas as the UK over the last few years, it's very easy to be the number one supporter of Ukraine, you know, to get that glory, to enjoy that position. Um, and so I think sometimes the hard work can fall behind the scenes, but also there were no easy answers to this. You know, it would have, it needed hard work and it needed sustained hard work. So why do you think Hamas launched its attack on October the 7th? So large, so brutal, and yet they must have known Israel would respond. Because they weren't acting in the interest of the people of Palestine, let alone the people of Gaza. Um, look, on the, on, I remember doing an interview the day after and I was asked exactly this, why, why do this? And the only answer I could come to was that it was about Iran. And we've seen an increasingly assertive, increasingly muscular Iran, whether it be in Iraq, whether it be in Yemen, whether it be in the UK, on our UK streets. You know, Iran has become more and more assertive. And yes, I think a lot of it did have to do with Saudi-Israel uh, normalization processes, but it wasn't just that. Um, so I think there's a lot to be asked about where and what and why. And I think it's too early for us to say that we know for definite that it was only because of Iran, but you can't take Iran out of the picture. I want to pick up on a point that you said, the fact that Hamas was actually not interested in the well-being of the Palestinian people, because you say here in Halifax that Israel should not be calling this an offensive or a war against Hamas, but rather a counterintelligence offensive. Why the importance of that label? So they're not at war with the people of Palestine. They're not at war with the people of Gaza. But there is a terrorist group, a terrorist group that committed crimes against humanity, uh, who need to be taken out. A counterterrorism operation is very different to a war. A counterterrorism operation is more controlled, it's more measured, it's more patient, and it's very clear from that operation that you are not targeting civilians, but that you have a single focus. What we saw with the operations, for example, against Daesh, was that we weren't allowed to go into a territory to liberate it unless we had a reconstruction plan. Where's the reconstruction plan for Gaza? Who's going to reconstruct Gaza? Who's going to pay for that reconstruction? Counterterrorism operations allow you that space to breathe and allow the best possible space for political process. We are only going to end this with a political process. But when you announce a war on Gaza, all the civilians of Gaza may ask if they are a target. Neighboring countries may say, you're at war with Gaza. You're not trying to just defeat a terrorist group. So I think the distinctions are not just in how you prosecute it, but also the day after, how we get to peace. But it also the tactics you use, though, because if you were to call it a counterterrorism operation, we're seeing something arguably far larger than that right now. Yeah, we absolutely are. And so with the counterterrorism operation, again, you know, again, fighting ISIS, I think we did something like 300,000 hours of ARPAS flying um, for every one airstrike that took place. Israel conducted 6,000 airstrikes in a week in Gaza. In Libya, we did something like 7,600 in a whole year. There is a demonstrable difference in that. Also, currently, Israel is focused on destroying civilian infrastructure. Now, is that to allow for a ground invasion so there's less house-to-house -house fighting? Is it so they can clear the space to do ground-penetrating attacks to get into the tunnels? I just don't know. But it is a very different type of tactic. And actually, a counterterrorism operation, I think, would have kept international support for longer, allowing Israel to truly eviscerate Hamas, but by doing so in a very measured, proportionate, disciplined way. 
but uh, we, we've heard it not only from Israeli officials but American officials as well. They put the blame on Hamas. Yeah. They put the blame on Hamas for these civilian casualties because they say that they have spent these years building hundreds of miles of tunnels underground, particularly under civilian infrastructure, a place like hospitals and schools. What do you say to that? So there's no question Hamas went in, they committed crimes against humanity and they attacked Israel. There is also no question that Hamas is hiding amongst civilian infrastructure and has done that for a very long time. But there is something called a collateral damage percentage that every military has and that's about making sure you're, making sure you're upholding your Geneva Convention responsibilities. Under that, there is a percentage that you agree to how much collateral damage, how many civilians can be killed for every target that you prosecute and decide to take out. I would challenge that Israel has not made it the right percentage. In the UK, it's always sat, as I understand it, around 2 to 3%. In the past, Israel's operated something as high as 20 to 25%. You still have to make decisions. Yes, if a terrorist group is using a civilian infrastructure, that is a war crime, but terrorists don't care. You know, we shouldn't be comparing Israel's actions to those of Hamas. One is a democratic country, and one is a brutal, genocidal terrorist organization. So yes, civilian targets, civilian locations, infrastructure can become legitimate targets, but you still have to decide as a country within the Geneva Conventions whether or not your strike is proportionate enough and how much collateral damage you are willing to accept. And I would argue that Israel is not getting that balance right as yet. The Israeli Prime Minister, we, we should point out though, of course you, you know this, has expressed his reservations, his doubts about a two-state solution. What's your reaction to that? So when I've met with Palestinians, they've also told me that they think a two-state solution is dead. When you meet with average Israelis, they also say that a two-state solution is dead. For me, I do not see how we make a one-state solution work. I do not see a future for that. Uh, but there is no question that over the last nine months, what we have seen from Netanyahu's government is far-right, ultra-orthodox, denial of the rights of Palestinians to exist, maps that have denied the existence of Jordan to hold on to its territorial integrity. And we have seen comments from the Knesset around, let's use nuclear bombs, let's you know, uh, raise Gaza to the ground. Contrast that to Ukraine. Ukrainian MPs have not been out doing interviews saying, let's destroy Russia, let's eviscerate Russia, let's drop a nuclear bomb on Russia. You know, these are not things they have been doing. And so I think there's a really important conversation there about the need the disparity. So Ukraine knew it needed to maintain international support. Israel seems to be taking the approach of doing as much as they can before they assume that they will eventually lose support. Surely we want Israel to be able to prosecute this operation for as long as they need to defeat Hamas, but they should want to maintain international support, not be essentially running the clock out. And of course, we have heard uh, more calls from international leadership to, for greater restraint, among them uh, the Canadian Prime Minister, the Prime Minister of this country, Justin Trudeau. Uh, what do you make of that call? What's your assessment of that call? So I think I'm, I feel very strongly that the lack of the use of the word restraint from the start was a major error. <clears throat> How Israel prosecutes this matters, and our ability, be it Canada, be the UK, to be a voice for rule of law, to speak plainly to our allies matters for our ability to be future arbiters of conflicts. If this was Canada or if this was the US that was doing what Israel is currently doing, we would speak out against them. We would say to them, you need to do better. We would still grieve with them. We would still want to help them defeat the terrorist group whose sole goal is to eviscerate them. It is an existential threat. 
but I'm concerned it took so long for many Western politicians to be able to talk about restraint. And now that we have a UN agreement to a humanitarian pause, we need to make sure that those happen and that they are genuine pauses where we can get aid in, get hostages out and help get our nationals who are still in Gaza out as well to safety. So, of course, we'll continue to watch what's happening between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. But, you know, before we're done, you compared what uh, Israel is doing to what Ukraine is doing. I do want to ask about that. Because during this conference in Halifax, you essentially say that the West has abdicated its responsibility to Ukraine with the kind of support that's been provided so far. What do you mean by that? Because we haven't done enough. We have given Ukraine enough to survive, but not to win. We have a choice. What, what are we looking to achieve here? What we should be looking to do is to make sure that Russia does not gain territory as a result of violence. Sovereignty cannot be achieved through violence. That's a message that matters for Xi Jinping and for many other people around the world to hear. And yet we consistently only give them enough to survive. And as Zelensky has said, since the appalling attacks on Israel, we have seen a slowdown in the delivery of artillery to Ukraine. And we're not even into the full winter phase yet. We have to stand by them. We have to support them fully. Ms. Kearns, I really appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. And you can see our full coverage of the Halifax International Security Forum this weekend right here on CPAC. It's a special edition of Profile, which also includes interviews with the head of the Ukrainian World Congress, Andriy Shevchenko, and former Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko. But for now, that is our program. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Primetime Politics will be back next week. We'll see you then.